We'll be in Matthew 27, starting verse 32 today. As we have been going through the book of Matthew, we've come to nearly the end here. And the title of today's message is, Jesus Takes the Punishment for Our Sin. Jesus Takes the Punishment for Our Sin. And the key word today is life, life. From the very beginning of Matthew, we have been anticipating this passage. In reality, the majority of the scriptures in the Old Testament have been looking forward to what we're about to read. And the majority of the New Testament scriptures are looking back to this event that we're about to read about. Namely, this is one of the most important events in all of human history. It's the death of Jesus. The death of the Messiah, the Son of God. His death is beyond words to describe how important it is. So humbly, I'm going to seek to understand and explain as much as I can today, realizing that we can't talk about everything that his death accomplishes, how his death accomplishes our freedom from the slavery to sin, that he conquers death. We'll mention those, but today we're specifically focusing on how Jesus takes the punishment for our sin on the cross. I think that is central to the cross. And I'm going to read a few verses from Psalm 22. And I want us to keep these in the back of our head because one of the, mo- one of the important things we'll see about Jesus' death is that it was planned, it was ordained by God to happen the way it did. And we'll see a lot of references to Psalm 22. So here's just a few of them to keep in mind when we go through our passage. So Psalm 22, verse 1, probably perhaps the most famous from Jesus quoting when he was on the cross, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Verse 7, Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him, since he takes pleasure in him. Verse 16, A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Verse 24. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. So even in his death, Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. So we hear these phrases again as we go through our passage today. And we'll have four main questions today as an outline. Number one, we're looking at answering, why did Jesus die? Secondly, why do people reject Jesus? Number three, why was Jesus abandoned by God the Father? And number four, what were the results of Jesus' death? So last week we concluded with verse 31. We see that after they had mocked him, They stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. And now we pick back up in verse 32. As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry his cross. People would normally have been forced to carry their own cross, but in Jesus' case, he was so badly beaten, flogged, whipped, he could not finish carrying the cross all the way there. And we see here an an emphasis on Jesus' humanity. He experienced real suffering, real pain. He could not carry the weight of the wooden cross on his back. 
This is emphasized in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, which all mention Simon from Cyrene helping carrying the cross. And this is likely, he mentions his name and where he's from. It's probably as a historical marker. Hey, this really happened. You can go ask Simon, the Cyrene, that what is, what is about to happen. This is historically true. And so while Simon helped him, Jesus likely carried his cross at least some of the way. And that's what's emphasized in the Gospel of John. John 19, verse 17, focuses on how Jesus carried the cross by himself. So there's two emphasis here. John making the emphasis that Jesus is likely the only one. He's he's likely emphasizing that Jesus is the only one to be able to bear the cross of our salvation. So he emphasizes Jesus' carrying the cross here. And perhaps Matthew, Mark, and Luke include the detail of Simon for the historical reliability of what happened. And this is likely the same mention of the place in verse 33. He mentions the place here where it happened. It says, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. So it was probably named this for a number of reasons. Uh, they could have put a skull on a stake to warn off people like, hey, this will happen to you as a punishment if you disobey the Roman government. Or there could have been skulls on the ground. Or the hill that was, it was on could have looked like a skull. We don't really know as the landscape and things have changed over time. But the point is not exactly where it was or what it meant. It's more important than the location is what happened here. What happened here? Verse 34, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. Perhaps this is an allusion to Psalm 69, verse 21, which has similar wording. And we see here that even the Romans uh, saw how painful the cross would be. They're trying to numb the pain. They're like, hey, at least we'll give him this. So it's wine mixed with gall, which is used as kind of a anesthesia to uh, lessen the pain. But Jesus refused to drink it. Why? I think he's trying to show that he's not bowing out. He is going completely to the cross. He's, he's going to be sober-minded there, and he's going to take the full wrath of God, the full cup that he's supposed to take. He's not going to drink, drink this to try to lessen the pain. And in verse 35, after crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. So here we see the image of the cross. And as we have in, in the church and throughout churches and in modern society today, you can see the, the picture of the cross everywhere. Uh, people have necklaces of the cross. But in ancient times, the cross represented one of the worst punishments ever. One man named Cicero, in living in 100 B.C. or so, He said that the terror of the cross was so horrific, the citizens of Rome did not want the thought of the crucifixion to even enter their minds, but wished it to be far removed from their thoughts and eyes and ears. They didn't even want to think about it. That's how bad it was. Jesus would have been stretched out on a horizontal wooden beam and nailed through it through his hands or his wrist. Then on the vertical beam, his heels would have been nailed to each side. Due to the multiple forms of trauma experienced, medical experts struggled to determine the exact cause of death for someone uh, dying from crucifixion. It could have been from blood loss. It could have been from exhaustion. 
dehydration, sunstroke as they're sitting in the sun all day, or even shock. They could have died from the shock of it. The form of Jesus' execution was not only painful, but it was also fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. As Paul would write in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The tree here representing the cross, the wooden cross. And the citation from Deuteronomy 21.23. So on the cross, Jesus took the punishment. On the cross, Jesus took the curse that we deserved because of our sin, because of our breaking of God's law. And so yet, when we are the ones who broke God's law, Jesus, who the one fulfilled everything, He was perfect, He's the one who became the curse for us. This is important for us to grasp because what Jesus accomplished on the cross is directly tied to our salvation. Why do we worship Jesus? How are we saved? Because some people... They see Jesus' death on the cross, and they say, that's a really good example for us, which it is. It's a good example for us to be willingly to go to the cross, to suffer and die for our faith, to trust in God. But if Jesus is just a good example and accomplished nothing more on the cross, then we are not saved from our sin. If you think, if you think that's all it is, if you think Jesus was just a good example you're not trusting in Jesus to take the punishment for your sin. Therefore, your sin is still unaccounted for. It's still unforgiven. Remember, everything leading up to this point is to guide us to properly understand the picture of the cross. Jesus did not just die on the cross like any other person, like any other criminal. His death was, has special significance, spiritual significance. So I'm going to run through just a couple verses. If you're taking notes you may just want to pause here and listen. Here's a, a string of verses that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew pointing us to Jesus taking the punishment that we deserve on the cross. That's how we should understand it. In Matthew 121, we see from the very beginning his declaration of his birth that, that his mother, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to save us from our, our sins. And why do we need to be saved from our sins? Because we deserve the wrath of God. As John the Baptist proclaims to the Pharisees in verse uh, Matthew 3, 7, he calls them brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. God's wrath was on them for their sin. So we need to turn from our sin, turn to Jesus in, in order to be saved from God's wrath. For it is God whom we need ultimate forgiveness from. Jesus taught us to pray to God in Matthew 6, 12. He, he, we ask God to forgive us our debts. We ask Him because our sin is ultimately against God. We, we need forgiveness from God. And how are we forgiven? How can we can't pay our debt? God needs to forgive our debt. How does He pay our sin debt? Jesus paid it with His life. As He says He will do in Matthew 20, 28. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That is, a ransom price. He paid the price that our sin deserved. He took the wrath of God in our place. And all of this is built on the understanding of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, 
which Jesus declares he's bringing about a new covenant. In the Old Testament, they had this, the old covenant. And then he's bringing a new covenant by his blood in, verse, in Matthew 26, verse 28. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And lastly, we saw a few weeks ago, Matthew 26, 39, he, he, Jesus does this. He says, going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What is he praying for to pass? He doesn't want to take the wrath of God for sin. We saw this imagery of the cup from the Old Testament as the wrath of God on sin. And that's just some highlighted verses in Matthew to make this case, to show you the point. Uh, I could go to other scriptures in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in Paul's writings, that support what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Namely, that he died for our sins. He took the punishment that we deserved. Isaiah 53, 5 may be the most clear passage. It says, He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. That's why Jesus died. That's why we have to trust in him and him alone. If this is what Jesus did for us, we go to our second question. Why did people reject Jesus? Why do, why do people reject him? If he, if he sacrificed his life for people, why do they reject him? Because we see the rejection of Jesus in verse 36 as we continue in the book of Matthew. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. And above his head they put the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Again, they were making fun of him. They were mocking him. They didn't really believe he was the king. And the irony here is that he really is the king of the Jews. Remember in the beginning of the book of Matthew, the Magi at his, uh, his birth, they declared this truth. They declared that he is the king of the Jews. And not only that, we've seen time and time again that Jesus is not only king of the Jews, but king of the whole world, king of the universe, king of creation. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, as we'll see in a couple of weeks after his resurrection. But they don't see that. They don't see Jesus for who he is. In verse 38, we see the two criminals were crucified with him, one on his right and one on the left. And those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads. They, they, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Even these criminals, we'll see, they were mocking him and make fun, making fun of him. And the word here, insults at him, is the same word for blasphemy. They were blaspheming against Jesus, claiming that he wasn't God, when in fact he was. And in verse 40, we can, they continue saying, making fun of him. He says, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, when Jesus spoke of the destruction of the temple, he was talking about the temple of his body. And now he is letting them destroy it. And he will be raised to life in three days since he is the Son of God. And being the Son of God, he could have saved himself. But in order to submit to the Father's will and out of love for his creation, he refuses to save himself so that he could save others. He stays on the cross for our sake. If he were to come down from the cross, we would have no salvation. Yet, they didn't understand this. They didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. They couldn't fathom that God would die for them. 
that, they would, that God would let, them, let him be, himself be treated this way. And in verse 41, in the same way, the chief priest with the scribes and elders, this is everybody, everybody is mocking him. And they said in verse 42, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He has saved others. Jesus has saved others. He's healed people. He's brought people back to life. But again, they don't understand Jesus' mission. Because it's not that he can't save himself. He is choosing not to save himself so that he can save others. They get it backwards. They don't understand this because ultimately, as we prayed for the Spirit to illuminate our hearts and our, and our eyes and our minds to understand, they didn't understand. They didn't have the spiritual insight. As 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The people look on the cross and they said, this doesn't make any sense. Why would Jesus, why would God, if he is the son of God, why would he die for us? Why would he give up his life? That doesn't make any sense. But it does make sense if you believe in Jesus and his death for the forgiveness of your sins. It's not because you are better or smarter than the next guy. If you, if you see the cross and you understand what's going on, it's not because you're smarter or better, because 1 Corinthians 1.18 continues, it says that the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. It's by God's power. It's by God's grace that he opened your eyes to see it. It's foolishness otherwise, as people are blinded by their sin. And they continue in their sin. They continue mocking him in verse 42, saying, He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Jesus, again, he is the king of Israel. He is the king of the world. And I would bet, even if Jesus did come down from the cross at that very moment, they still wouldn't believe. They didn't believe after seeing everything he's done, after seeing him teaching with authority, after healing people, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy after Old Testament prophecy. I don't think this would have changed their minds at all. The chief priests continue to mock Jesus. Verse 43, he says, He trusts in God, let God rescue him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. They are right. Jesus does trust God his Father. We saw Jesus trust his Father while he prayed in the garden. He says, God, not my will, but your will be done. And God, his Father, does take pleasure in him. Jesus is completely innocent. He is completely righteous. We even have the declaration of God the Father during Jesus' baptism saying in Matthew 3, 17, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God is pleased with Jesus. Jesus' suffering on the cross was not a sign of God's displeasure with Him. Jesus was taking the punishment for others' sins, not His own. He was perfect. He was innocent. And we know that God the Father is pleased with God the Son because Jesus will be resurrected from the dead. As we read in Philippians 2, 8, He, Jesus, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name that is above every name. So notice the irony. They thought for God to be pleased with Jesus... That, that, uh, and, and for Jesus to be truly the Son of God, that he would have been spared of suffering, that he would have been spared from death. But in reality, Jesus endured the suffering 
Because Jesus endured this suffering, God is pleased with him and raised him from the dead and highly exalted him to the right hand, proving that Jesus is really the Son of God. And in verse 44, we see that they continue to mock him and make fun of him, not just the chief priests, but we also see in the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. I can't even imagine. They're, they're being crucified alongside of him, and they're using their last energy, some of their last words, to make fun of Jesus. And the Gospel of Luke, this is, this is where Matthew stops about the, the two criminals here. And the Gospel of Luke gives us a really important story that occurs between verses 44 and 45 of Matthew 27. Namely, while the criminals were left taunting Jesus and Matthew, we see the grace of God to forgive one of the criminals in Luke's gospel. For in Luke 23, 43, Jesus says to one of them, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Because the criminal, even though he was just taunting Jesus, turns around and shows faith in Jesus. And that's why Jesus came to die. So that all sins can be forgiven. That anyone who turns to Jesus in faith will be with him in paradise, in heaven, after they die. And now we come to the end of Jesus' crucifixion. And we answer the, try to answer the question, why was Jesus abandoned by God the Father? We read in verse 45, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. The time of Jesus' suffering is really interesting because it, co- it corresponds to the time in which the sacrifice, the Passover lamb, would have been sacrificed. So in a sense, it's showing us that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. For he is taking the punishment. He's being sacrificed at the same time as the Passover lambs would have been. And so while Jesus' death is ultimately good news of salvation for those who believe in him, it's bad news. It's a, it's a sign of judgment for those who've rejected him. And thus we see the dark judgment of God cover the land. Darkness is coming over the whole land because of all the people mocking and rejecting Jesus. Not only that, we also see the judgment of God on the sin laid upon Jesus. As we read in verse 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Here we see Jesus cry out in either Hebrew or Aramaic. It's a quote from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Because as we've seen, Jesus is taking the wrath of God in his suffering. That is why his cry is directed towards God. Because remember, our sin is ultimately against God. And through the suffering on the cross, Jesus is taking the wrath of God for our sins. And part of this punishment for our sins includes separation from God. For this is, in part, what the punishment of our sins deserve. We can look through the Old Testament. Remember, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, part of their punishment was that they were put out of God's presence. They were put out of the garden. Uh, Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, there were two goats, one offered as a sacrifice and one sent out into the wilderness to be separated, putting sin out of the camp, out of the presence of God. Jesus spoke of the punishment for those who do not repent and believe in God. Jesus taught that this punishment includes as being outside the wedding banquet in that parable, Matthew 25, 10. As being thrown into outer darkness in verse 30. 
as departing from his presence in verse 41. And specifically, Jesus says in Matthew 25, 46, going away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Therefore, it is eternal punishment or eternal life is at stake. And so on the cross, we see the picture of what we deserve because of our sin against God. And so Jesus is the eternal God in the flesh. God became man, fully God, fully man. And in these moments of suffering, he is able to take the eternal punishment that we deserve. That's why no one else could be our Savior. Nothing else could save us but God himself, taking the eternal punishment that we deserve. And by quoting Psalm 22, Jesus shows his continued faith in God by crying out to him, and likely has the end of Psalm 22 also in mind, because usually when people in ancient times would quote the beginning of a, a psalm or a passage, it would include that whole context. And we see at the end of Psalm 22, we see the prayer, Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. And we see the end, You answered me. You answered me. For though Jesus is taking the punishment for our sin on the cross and is abandoned by God, he is, he is um, the distance and it's a separation from God for that punishment. That's not the end of the story. God will answer Jesus' prayer and raise him from the dead. And we'll see this good news of Jesus' resurrection next week. But for now, we read on in verse 47. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling for Elijah. They likely thought this because they misunderstood Jesus when he said, Eli, Eli, which meant, my God, my God. But they thought he, he meant Elijah. So they wanted to know what Jesus said for sure. They, maybe they misheard him. So in verse 48, immediately one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. So this may seem odd to you. Why would they be thinking Elijah is coming to save Jesus? They, thought, they may have thought that because many ancient Jews back then believed that Elijah, one of the Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament, would come and save a righteous person from death. But in actuality, we know, as uh, Dr. Quarles has pointed out, that it was not Elijah who would save Jesus from death, but Jesus who would save Elijah by his death. For we today look back on Jesus' death for the forgiveness of our sins. It happened in the past relative to us. But the people in the Old Testament, people like the prophets, Elijah, Moses, all of them, they looked forward to the Messiah. They looked forward in time. They looked forward to the time when Jesus would come. And they looked forward to his death and trusted in the Messiah to save them. Because Jesus is the only way of salvation for all peoples across all times. Old Testament and New Testament. He's the only Savior. And in verse 50, we see the conclusion of the crucifixion. And we see what are the results of Jesus' death. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Jesus died. He remained completely obedient to the Father's will, even through ridicule, suffering, Death itself. And his death results in two things. Number one, it will foreshadow judgment on those who reject him. We see this in verse 51. 
Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. This likely symbolizes its judgment because of their rejection of the Messiah. Much like the darkness over the land was a symbol of judgment. And also to show that something greater than the temple was here. For Jesus was God's presence with his people on earth. And while he's gone, the Holy Spirit is God's presence with his people. Thus, when it said that Jesus gave up his spirit, it meant he died. He he no longer breathed. His spirit has gone out of his body. It, It also may be pointing to the coming of the Holy Spirit as part of the new covenant brought about by Jesus' death. And the work of the Holy Spirit is likely to cause what is about to happen next. The Holy Spirit at work in making life. Because in Jesus' death, it results in life for others. As we see in Matthew 27, 52, the tombs were also opened, and many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection entered the holy city, and appeared to many. So while there is judgment for those who reject Christ, we see a glimpse, a foreshadowing of blessings for those who believe in Christ. Jesus' death brings life, and here's a picture of that very thing. People were raised to life. Just as he raised Lazarus, Lazarus to life, he raised these people to life by his death. They were not raised to eternal life, Their bodies would decay and die again. They would still be waiting for the final resurrection, their glorified bodies. They are but a foreshadowing of Jesus' resurrection into eternal life and a foreshadowing of the eternal life we have in Christ. The resurrection is pointing to a greater resurrection, the final resurrection. And in Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, it depicts eternal life made possible by the new covenant and the Holy Spirit in similar terms. We see the new covenant being brought about by the Holy Spirit. And we've been talking about the new covenant a lot lately in Matthew. And Ezekiel 37 depicts it like this, starting in verse 13. He says, You will know that I am the Lord, my people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. God, the Holy Spirit, causes life. Not only physical life, but spiritual life. We were dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. But God made us alive in Christ. And that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of this happening, we see the response of the soldiers who were there and responsible for Jesus' death. They will now know He is God in verse 54. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly this man was the Son of God. Can you imagine being there, being those soldiers, just mocking, beating, making fun of Jesus, killing Jesus? You're responsible for that. And then you see all the things happen. You see the darkness over the land. You see people rising from the grave. They don't need any more signs that they just made the biggest mistake of their lives. Perhaps the biggest mistake in all of human history. They killed the Son of God. They are rightly terrified. I I wouldn't even know how to compute what just happened if I were a part of that. They recognize the weight of what they've done. But But notice... Even in this moment, at Jesus' death, 
even in the moment where we see the soldiers and everybody reject God to the, the pinnacle of sin, killing the Son of God, in this we see the grace and patience of God. For God would have been justified in judging everyone guilty of murdering the Son of God right then and there. If we were God in that place, what would we have done? Right? But God doesn't. He doesn't judge them and condemn them right there. Why? That's the whole reason Jesus came to die. He died while we were still sinners. He offers salvation to all peoples from all sins and promises eternal life to those who trust in Him. Even these soldiers, though they're terrified now, they could repent and come to faith. And this life that we're promised, eternal life if we trust in Christ and forgiveness, is possible because this isn't the end of the story. Because Sunday's coming. Death cannot hold him down. So respond to God in faith and worship for what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. God, help us never to forget the weight of our sin. As we look to Jesus, what he endured because of our sin. Our sin is weighty, it is dark, it is evil. Let us not take it lightly. When we look to the cross, we know that we are completely forgiven. Jesus has died once and for all our sins. No matter how bad our life has been, no matter our sin in the past, your blood covers it all because you are God. You are the Son of God. We thank you. We worship you. We praise you. God, help us be bold in sharing this message with others so that they too can be forgiven no matter what they've done. If there's anyone here, God, I ask that that has never trusted in you or never seen the weight of their sin and trusted in you to forgive them, that today would be the day. God, if there's somebody here that's maybe has forgotten this, has grown cold to your love, that you would enrich them, that you would warm their hearts, that they, they would see how much you love them, they would respond in faith and worship and obedience to you and honor you with all their lives. I would pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand for our invitation, please. The cross upon which Jesus died is a shelter in which we can hide, and His grace so free is sufficient for me, and deep is its fountain as wide.
Y'all can be seated. Again, if there's anybody here that would like for me to pray, talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus, I'd love to talk with you after the service. I'll be hanging around. I do have one announcement for we are dismissed. Um, Nick, our youth pastor, and his wife, Rebecca, have been serving our church for uh, over a year now. They have loved their youth and the kids in the church. They have loved me and my family. They've really loved and served the whole church in so many ways. So it's going to be real tough to see them go. Uh, next month. They're going to be moving back down to Georgia, uh, back closer to their families. Uh, Nick has been traveling back and forth each week, uh, working with his dad, as most of you guys know. He's going to be graduating from seminary next month, and there's a lot of things aligning that kind of look like God's putting blessing on this and look, look, a wise de- decision. And there's also uh, ministry opportunities down there for them to serve at a church. Um, so you guys will be missed. For sure, we're so thankful for the time we were able to have with you guys. Uh, so the last Sunday worshiping with us uh, is going to be uh, December 4th next month, first Sunday in December. So we'll have a whole month to love on them, uh, be praying for God to bless their next season of life and ministry, uh, then be able to send them out on that Sunday. Uh, so Nick, uh, can you come up and close us out in prayer for us? If you'll bow with me. Lord, thank you for your day. Thank you for your house that we can come worship you in. Lord, thank you for Union Chapel. Just the, the light and the darkness that they are, Lord, um, as a church and just as a family, Lord. Just as a people that love you and want to make you known. Please bless a Union Chapel and continue to, to grow the church and to just to, we'd all fall more in love with you every day. Thank you for Pastor Josh and for his leadership and, and for everyone involved, everything in between, Lord. Uh, just thank you for loving us all, for giving your son Jesus to die for us on the cross, that, that we could live with you one day in heaven. And thank you just for your many blessings and just, just for your love, Lord, and your provision. We love you, Lord. Amen.